0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we run the gamut from 12-step to dark matter and dark energy, as we talk with Nancy Ellen Abrams, she's the author of the new book, A God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. She's a scientist, I'm a theologian, and over the next hour we manage to have a pretty amazing conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nancy Ellen Abrams. She's a philosopher of science, a lawyer, and she's the author of several books, some of which are with her husband, Joel R. Premack, who is a, a cosmologist and astrophysicist. Together they have written The View from the Center of the Universe, Discovering Our Extraordinary Place in the Cosmos, and The New Universe and the Human Future, How a Shared Cosmology Could Transform the World. We're speaking today about Nancy Ellen Abrams' most recent book, a God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. Nancy Ellen Abrams, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, David.
0: Well, I I really enjoyed reading the book. I enjoyed being uh, presented with this very new way of looking at both our universe and our spirituality. But I wonder if, if as a way of getting into the conversation, you'd be willing to, to talk a little bit about about this word cosmology. When we say that your husband is a cosmologist, when we say that, that your husband uh, works in that field, when we say that you are writing from a perspective of cosmology, what does that mean?
1: Cosmology today is the scientific study of the universe as a whole, the universe as a single evolving being. Not the individual objects in it, although of course they play a big role, but how does the whole universe work? What is it made of? How does it develop? Why does it have the structure that it does? Why are there galaxies? Why are they distributed the way they are? That is what modern cosmologists study. But the word cosmology is really much older than that. And in fact, anthropologists use it all the time. And when they use it, what they mean is the picture of reality that a culture shares. And um, that could include how people are supposed to behave, what do the gods expect of them, why does the natural world work the way that it does, and so forth. So there are these two different concepts of cosmology, the anthropological one and the astrophysical one. And what my husband and I tried to do in our first book, The View from the Center of the Universe, which you just mentioned, is to bring these together because it is possible now To have a picture of reality that we share that's based on the new scientific picture of the universe. We believe that they need to come together again because they've been separated for a long, long time. So cosmology, (laughs) as you can see, is something I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to improve the meaning of it to to mean both the uh, picture of reality that a culture shares and the scientific picture because I think it should be the same.
0: Well, and I appreciate you taking a moment to to clarify what that term means, and I, I i'm very I'm very pleased to sort of get this early in the conversation into that that split between the sort of personal internal worldview of how you connect to the universe and the cosmos and the more scientifically based one and you You said in your answer just a moment ago that those two worldviews have been split for some time, and you talk about this in the book. And I was very fascinated at, at how that split occurred. And I wonder if you might uh, uh, tell us a little bit about kind of when those two worldviews were the same and when they when they began to split apart.
1: Well, they were always the same uh, in the beginning. Um, the whole purpose of gods, the reason that the gods uh, became a concept in people's minds was that they represented the forces of nature. So in... Well, of course we can't really go back very much beyond written history but if you go back to ancient Egypt and ancient Sumer especially Egypt which we know a lot more about the gods actually represented they represented the forces of nature in the sense that there was a god that represented um storms there was a god that represented fertility there was a god you know each of these important things had gods and monotheism attempted to say that, no, there's only one God, and it controls all of those forces of nature. Now, that made sense in biblical times, because people really had no idea how nature operated. But what's happened now is that because science has progressed and we've come to see more and more uh, how nature actually operates – But we have continued to think of God as people thought of it back in pre-scientific times. We now have this huge gap between our understanding of what God is and does and how nature operates. So now, in many people's understanding, God has nothing to do with nature. God isn't even part of our universe. God doesn't follow the laws of physics.
0: When I was a professor of religion, I used to play "Earth, Wind, and Fire" September for my class, and the song starts out saying, "Do you remember on the twenty-first night of September, love was changing the hearts of pretenders?" And it kind of goes along onto the "body heart part, but 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 <laughs> don't the really this song. what I what I was trying to communicate to these students was, you know, why does he say the twenty-first night of September, and then later in the in the song he says the twenty-first night of December? That's you know, the
1: equinox and the
0: and the solstice exactly the equinox and the solstice. And I I, I started to talk about how ancient religions had this sense of cosmic connection between the events on the earth and the events in the stars. What I loved about your book is that you said, yes, that's exactly how it used to be. And we've lost that, except for people that believe in, in astrology and things like that. But one of the th- one of the questions that came up for me in reading that was, well, when someone like Isaac Newton then says the same thing that makes the apple drop to the earth is the same thing that makes the moon move around the earth and the earth move around the sun, was that in some way an attempt to reconnect the events on the earth back to the cosmos?
1: It might have been. He was a very religious man. And toward the end of his life, he spent almost all his time working on theology. <laughs> People don't know that. But... Um, no, I think Newton absolutely believed in God and believed that God was that that God was necessary to keep the planets in their perfect orbits that otherwise they might start uh, deviating from their orbits. So he was religious. I don't know whether that was his goal of course because he didn't he didn't explain that.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nancy Ellen Abrams. She's a philosopher of science, a lawyer, and an author. She's married to the cosmologist Joel R. Premack, and she's the author of A God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. We're we're looking at a way of reintegrating the very evidence-based understanding of the universe with an interior life, if I'm understanding your book correctly. You're trying to give that a grounding. Is that correct?
1: Yes, but it's, it's much trickier than anything Isaac Newton could possibly have imagined. Here's the big difference between his time and biblical times, in fact, all earlier times and today. And that is that um, in the last 20 to 30 years, the scientific picture of the universe has changed drastically. When I was um, in college, and I was studying physics, um, I was taught that the Earth is an average planet of an average star in a universe where really no place is any different from any other. And what we know may go on infinitely. And my husband has been one of the lead researchers in the world. In fact, one of the creators of the modern theory of why there are these structures of galaxies and how they formed and so forth. And so he he has been working on this theory for well over 30 years. I've watched how the theory has developed. It's been quite a drama, but I've watched this new picture of the universe emerge, and it is not like that at all. It turns out we're living on an extraordinary planet. It's so unusual we've never found another one like it, and they've discovered well over 3,000 extrasolar planets That means planets of stars other than the sun. None of them are like the Earth. We've also discovered... I mean, they've discovered... I almost say we because I've lived through this with them. They've also discovered that the universe is not made of atoms, mostly. There's very few atoms in this universe. Mostly, the universe is made of dark matter and dark energy, which are these two very mysterious substances. So dark matter is matter in the sense that it has gravity, but it is not made of atoms. It's not made of the parts of atoms. It's totally invisible because it doesn't even interact with light. And dark energy is the energy that is making the expansion of the universe accelerate. That's also something that wasn't known until recent years. People thought the expansion of the universe started out really fast at the Big Bang and has been slowing down because of all the matter in it. But that's not what's happening That did happen for about 9 billion years. And then, about 5 billion years ago, the slowing down turned around, and the universe is now accelerating in its expansion. It's expanding faster and faster. So the energy that's making that happen is called dark energy. And the interaction between dark energy and dark matter is what has spun the galaxies into being, the visible galaxies into being. And those galaxies are the only possible homes for life, for planets and life. So without dark matter and dark energy, we would never have been here. This is a completely different picture from what Newton thought. He, he he didn't know this was a dynamic universe at all. And it's completely different from what they discovered in the 1960s when the expansion of the universe was discovered. No one knew there was anything like dark matter or dark energy, and yet it's almost it's 95% of the whole universe. So, we really are in a <clears throat> in a new phase of uh, of understanding our universe
0: well, a moment ago, you were talking about these recent discoveries that your husband was was a, a key part of the notions of dark matter which don 't interact with light but make up a predominant amount of the mass of our universe, and dark energy, the energy that helps to sort of push the universe into an ever expanding uh, i don 't even know if sphere would be the right word, but pushes the expansion of the universe now these are these are catastrophically large concepts to be looking at, and yet you say that that in all that vastness, with all that we 've discovered, that the Earth is a very unique uh, a unique planet in that whole sort of scheme. Now, there are certain religious people who would say that's absolutely the case. Earth has to be the unique planet because it was consciously created by a conscious God to be unique, and no matter how vast we might discover the universe to be, we will never find another planet like the Earth. Um, So are you saying something like that, that we are are singularly unique, or are you saying that we are just very, very rare?
1: No, I'm saying we are indeed unique uh whether it's singular or not. I mean, we really don't know what's out there. There could be somewhere. There could be a planet vaguely similar to Earth. It'll never be exactly similar to Earth. But I'm not saying that God created it. I do not believe that's true at all, and I don't think it's necessary. Uh If this planet were not uh, the kind of place where intelligent beings could have evolved, we wouldn't have evolved here. So obviously we could only have evolved on a special kind of a planet. It looks like life of our Complexity is quite rare in the universe, although so life of a much lower complexity could be quite common, like microbes, they could be quite common
0: now, what I'd like to highlight about your book and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you you want to push in a spiritual direction, you want to push into a direction that that opens itself up to for want of a better word for the metaphysics behind the physical but you want to do that in a way that is just absolutely grounded in what we can know and the physical evidence that is available to us. Is that a fair characterization of your work?
1: Yes, I do. That's exactly right.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with philosopher of science and author Nancy Ellen Abrams. We're talking about her new book, A God That Could Be Real, looking at the effects of cosmology on understandings of religion in the 21st century. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're talking about the new cosmology and old-time religion. We're speaking today with Nancy Ellen Abrams, author of A God That Could Be Real. She applies the findings of science about dark matter and dark energy to an understanding about religion for the 21st century. In in our current cultural landscape, um, there are those that are on the physicalist side, Richard Dawkins and others, who are going to want to pull you in one direction and say there is no metaphysics, and there are going to be new age types that are going to say, oh yes, quantum physics describes everything that goes on in my spiritual life or what have you. How do you you maintain that tightrope walk?
1: Well, both of those positions are quite absurd and very narrow-minded. Here's what the Richard Dawkins school says. They say the only important version of God that we need to refute is the literal biblical one. That is, God created the universe, God was there in the beginning, God knows everything, God can break the laws of physics, and God plans everybody's life. And they say none of these things could have happened, therefore God does not exist. Now, what I'm saying is those particular characteristics, it is true can't really exist in the kind of universe that we now know that we live in. But that's no place to stop, because all those people have said is, this is what God can't be. But they haven't even attempted to approach what God could be. And the way that we think about what God could be really should be fed by and nourished by the knowledge that we have in our time. We can think about God in such more creative ways. Then people thought about it in pre-scientific times. We don't need to have a God that knows everything, because it's impossible to know everything in a universe in a relativistic universe. There's no way that any intelligence can know everything in the universe, because the knowledge doesn't even exist. Knowledge, the truth is largely local in a relativistic universe, in different frames of reference that are moving at different speeds the same event will be seen completely differently and it isn't a matter of perception it's a matter of reality so there's no such thing as omniscience it's simply impossible
0: now what i want to make sure of as we're going into this part of the conversation is that our listeners keep up with us so you've just used twice now this term relativistic and um, if i'm if i'm correct that's a that's a reference to einstein's theory of relativity yes. from from the early part of the 20th century yeah and so just briefly uh when we talk about relativistic effects, what are we really talking about? We're used to Newtonian physics and we, we live in an, a, a Newtonian universe, but you're talking about uh, a set of knowledge that kind of knocks that, to use my old New Testament professor's phrase, into a cocked hat. That 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 at the at the level of great speed, or even at the level of great distance, or at the level of microscopics, that we're we're talking about a universe that doesn't run by Newtonian principles. Is that correct?
1: Well, um, on the very small scale and at at slow speeds and um, short times and so forth, Newtonian physics certainly does work. But when you are talking about the universe as a whole, Newtonian physics does not work. There we have things moving at, um, well, close to the speed of light and um, great time um, stretches and It's just completely different. The situation is very different on the large scale. You have to use relativity to understand what's going on. And let me just step back a little from explaining the technical part to explaining why I want to bring in the technical part. Yes. And that is that if you believe something and then you find out that the facts on which your belief is based are simply wrong, it only makes sense to change your opinion. That's what we're doing with our picture of God. We have this picture of God that was developed in pre-scientific times long before science, in fact, thousands of years, and we're holding on to it even though we have knowledge that shows that the way we're thinking about it is wrong and impossible. So it's very important to understand what are the facts? What are the facts that show us that this picture of God is wrong. I am absolutely not saying with the atheists that God doesn't exist. Not at all. But what I'm saying is they have a point because what they're doing is trying to refute the wrong picture of God. Then they conclude there is no God. That is not a valid conclusion. The conclusion then is, well, is there some better way to think about it? Now, there is... And if we use the knowledge, the new knowledge that we have now, which is the first in all of human history picture of the universe that's actually based on evidence, then we can have some, a much deeper understanding of what God could be given the universe that we live in. So that's my, that's my project here. I just want to bring us up to date.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Nancy Ellen Abrams. She's a philosopher of science, a lawyer, and an author, today discussing her most recent book, A God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. Last year, I was having a conversation on this program with the religion writer Phyllis Tickle, and she made the statement, which I've heard her make often in public, that in the 21st century, people who are going to seminary to study religion should be required to take classes in physics and cosmology. And first of all, I just want to ask, do you agree?
1: Absolutely. I think everybody should. Because this is our universe. This is not some technical thing that uh, experts discuss uh, in Ivory Towers. This is our picture of the universe. And if you look back over history the one thing that binds a culture together that makes people feel that they really have something in common is that they share their picture of reality. If we don't have that, we don't have the deepest bond that humans need. And that's one of the reasons that our society is so at odds with each other. We're fighting within our society. We're fighting one culture against another culture, one religion against another. We don't agree on what reality is. So if we could agree on that, it would change the whole world. So yes, everybody should learn. Now, you don't have to obviously learn the technical stuff. The the amazing thing is that these scientists have figured it out. We don't have to figure it out. All we have to do is just learn the basic things that they've discovered, which are fabulous and really quite exciting. So yes, I think everyone starting in elementary school should be learning what kind of a universe we
0: actually live in.
1: And well, we could share that, and that would be our common ground.
0: Well, then let me let me then turn the conversation around and ask the question in a slightly different way. So Phyllis Tickle says that every every seminarian should learn physics. Should every physics student be required to take classes and courses in religion and spirituality?
1: I don't think they should, and that's because until religion opens up its mind to reality, I don't see why people who are... Studying reality should have to study it. There are, They should certainly be somehow uh, more sensitive to the need of people to have a spiritual life. I think that would be nice, but I don't think you can force that on them. So no, I think at this point in history, it's not a symmetrical uh, situation. But I think that if the seminarians really did start to learn something about the universe and could speak to scientists... On the level where they deserve to be spoken to, that is with an acceptance of what the scientific method does and why it's valuable and why we have to not ignore it. If seminarians get to that point, then sure, then I think that the uh, scientists would be happy to learn something from them.
0: As 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 a as your conversation partner, I have to say that I'm very, very pleased by that answer. I imagine that I'm going to have several listeners that will take issue with that answer. And so for that purpose, let me just uh, for a moment give voice to what might be one of their criticisms of what you just said. Okay. So what, what you've just brought then is the sense that uh, science is the master narrative, and it really depicts, as you said, reality as it is, and that all that we're getting from – from religious discourse right now is foolishness and nonsense, and it may be cute that they believe these things, but really we won 't actually listen to them until they 've come around and they 've learned how to actually speak about reality
1: No, oh, no no, see no I'm, I, but i wasn't i wasn 't talking about everything that religion discusses. I mean religion is incredibly valuable to so many people it gives people a refuge from life, it gives them a, from the bad parts of life, it gives them a community it gives them a sense of uh, principles that they can hold on to when when things are difficult, I mean obviously there are a lot of real benefits from religion, and those are certainly valuable, but all i 'm talking about is when religions try to discuss the natural world and how it operates that i don 't think any scientist has an obligation to learn
0: well, and I appreciate that clarification, and so let me reflect back what i 've just heard to make sure that i've got it so Right now, you would say that religion is very valuable on an internal level for the individual's internal life, but that it needs to take some steps to learn a language of describing the physical world in a more accurate way, and then it can become more valuable to to this this ongoing conversation about the external world. But you're not disavowing the, the, the value of religion as an internal construct right now.
1: Absolutely not. In fact, I have a whole chapter in my book called Renewing Religions. And The thing is that any religion that has been around for, you know, a thousand years or more than that, obviously has something going for it, has something very valuable to people. But it has been smothered over history in a million post-it notes of different ideas and interpretations and things that various uh, members of the religion, or even outsiders, have stuck on the outside of the religion. And a lot of those are just wrong or they were put on there to protect somebody's power or interest. I don't know what, but the thing is, it's important to clean that stuff off. It's important to find out what the core truths of our religions are. And I introduce an idea called the truth box. And I think that every religion has a truth box, but a lot of stuff on the outside doesn't belong in it and is, does not have the same state, truth status as the core ideas. The core ideas like um, love your neighbor or um, you know, do unto others, these are, you know, these are going to be true no matter what. These are important. But ideas like uh, God created the world in six days, it, no, <laughs> it's not going to stay in your truth box.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Nancy Ellen Abrams. She's the author of A God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet.
1: Now, what is the idea of a truth box? It's a scientific idea. And the idea is this. We were talking about Newton and Einstein, so I'll use that as an example. At very slow speeds and low gravitational fields, Newtonian equations and Einstein's equations will give you the same results. So so Newton is really quite reliable. Newton's laws are quite reliable when you use them for most Earth-type events. But... The further and further you get away from earth like conditions, the less Newton's laws work until at some point they don't even they don't work at all. So what we have is a story where a later theory, that is Einstein's theory, corrected a lot of what Newton's theory would have predicted. But it doesn't change it within the truth box of Newton's theory. So you could say that Newton has a box and it's surrounded by Relativity. And inside uh, the truth box, you can still rely on Newton. But As soon as you get outside the box, you can't. And then you have to rely on relativity. Quantum physics is similar in that it also encompasses Newton's theory. So Newton's truth box is also encompassed by quantum theory, but quantum theory and relativity do not encompass each other. So neither of them can be a final theory. There has to be something, and there will someday, probably in the future, be some theory that encompasses all of that. So what we can say is that until we know the limits of a theory, we can't know how reliable it is. But when we know the limits, then we know how reliable the core part of it is, which leaves you with this ironic situation in physics that until you know that a theory is false, you can't know that it's true. You know what I mean? So when you discover that beyond a certain level, the theory is false and doesn't work, that's when you know that within that box, it's true. So no one can say that Einstein's theory of relativity is true yet until we discover what its limits are. So in physics, a theory can be true, but never universal. It can't be true and also universal. So I want to use that model in religion, and I want to say that each of our religions has a truth box, and we can discover what's in it if we're willing to let go of the stuff that's outside it, that's making it look untrue as a whole.
0: I appreciate you taking a moment to talk about this concept of the the truth box, and I think that there's, there's an interesting set of conversations that we could have around the... The sort of parallel that I see between what you're saying happens in science and what happens in the development of theology, if we were to look at your background, you're trained in the philosophy of science, you're you're married to a a husband who is a cosmologist – uh, on paper, you have, a, you have a certain trajectory about how you are approaching these questions of religion. You've written an entire book where you say ultimately you'd like to sort of overturn some of the old traditional ideas of, of religion and replace them with a, with a more descriptive and useful way of, of being religious. If we were to look at me on paper, uh, I'm a trained Catholic theologian. Uh, in many ways, I haven't made it out of the fourth century in terms of my thinking and my theology in terms of religious matters. And I'm I'm sort of what you'd call a company man on, on that on, in that regard. Do you I, really
1: believe that? Oh, that you I, haven't made it out of the fourth century? Well
0: that, that, that in in terms of in terms of not des- descriptions of the physical world, but in terms of the way that I talk about things like uh, the divinity of Christ, the virginity of Mary, those sorts of things, I, I, I find a lot of resource in, in that particular period of time when I do my theological work. And that's all to say that on paper, you know, I'm committed to the tradition that you're trying to overturn. Now, where I found an interesting piece of common ground with you was that you you foreground the book and, and talk about coming out of the 12-step tradition. I also come out of the 12-step tradition, and working that particular set of, of traditions has been just fundamental to me being a, a functioning person. And it sounds like that was a similar a similar experience to you, and I wonder if you'd be – willing just for a moment to, to talk about that with our listeners and sort of yes. ha- how, how that experience brought you into this broader question of spirituality.
1: That, that experience is definitely what brought me in because, really, I was an atheist to start off. I mean, I wasn't a, a Dawkins type in the sense that I was in your face about it, but I had never heard any description of God that didn't sound to me either impossible or else so vague as to be empty. And then when I had to get into a 12-step program, I had great doubts that I could do this because I had no idea how to think about higher power. But, you know, when you're in a 12-step program, you don't have a lot of options. And um, you can feel pretty desperate, and I really did. So in a 12-step program, when it refers to God, what the actual words are God as we understood Him. But I started realizing that um, hardly anybody really had a meaningful Understanding of God. And I started to understand that God, as we understood him, was not a basket to hold many versions of God. What it was was a challenge to each individual to come up with some kind of an understanding, or at least to search for it. And I realized that as long as I believed that God was impossible and meaningless and pointless, I would be unable to search for that kind of an understanding. And I was not worried about uh not finding the an understanding of God. What I was worried about was not being able to even search for it. And I really changed at that point. It, it it was just really quite a turning point for me. I I really began to be willing to search for an understanding. And I want to say to anybody out there who's in a 12-step program and doesn't have a clear understanding of God. You don't need one. All you need to recover in a 12-step program is the willingness to search for an understanding. That's it. So I was not in any hurry. It's not like I thought I was going to lose my recovery if I didn't come up with something. And it took me It took me over 20 years. Seriously, I, I've been in the program for 26 years, and it really was only in the last few years that I, I finally realized how I need to think about God so that I actually have an understanding that is completely consistent with science and also completely powerful enough to keep me in recovery.
0: You're listening to Things Not Seen. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Nancy Ellen Abrams. She's the author of the recent book, A God That Could Be Real?, We're discussing how recent discoveries in cosmology and science are reshaping the way that we view God and religion. Before the break, I was speaking with Abrams about how her involvement with a 12-step program had led her into these deeper questions of religion and spirituality. So in my engagement with 12-step, part of how I do that God of my understanding sort of part of it is that that's about me letting go of my need to control everything and to say I... I exist in a universe that in some way is benevolently ordered in such a way that I can trust that that things are, are going to care for me in some in some way. What I liked about your book is that the way that you end up taking that seed crystal of the god of our understanding and you build it out into this network of associations that touch on cosmology is that when you begin to talk about concepts like emergence – That begins to explain how we are, in fact, cared for, and cared for may be too humanizing a term, but we, we have a place in this mosaic of, of ongoing emerging creation. We make sense coming out of that because we're, we're of that. And I just want to make sure, am I, am I reading that correctly in what you're saying, that there is a, a sort of, a sort of non-intelligent benevolence that is going on in the universe in your view of the divine?
1: Benevolence is a human uh, word, and it's a human perception. I don't think there's something that we could call benevolence that exists without us. It's not as though the universe is benevolent. It's that we can see the universe that way. And if we do, we have a better life. But it's our perception. And this is really the basis of my whole idea of God. And I might as well explain it here because it seems to be relevant. You brought up the idea of emergence. Absolutely. I think it is impossible that God existed before, that God was something out there that existed before the universe. And the way I explain this is I explain what we actually know about the beginning of the universe. And there is no beginning. This is the interesting thing. In cosmology, the scientists keep pushing back the beginning. It used to be the Big Bang. It used to be... People thought there was nothing, and then suddenly there was the Big Bang, and there was everything. But that was 50 years ago, and now there is a theory called cosmic inflation, which can explain what set up the initial conditions for the Big Bang, what happened just before it. There's another theory, and that actually has a lot of uh, supporting evidence. There's another theory of what happened before that. It's called eternal inflation, which uh, tells us that the universe... Now, for this, I must say there's no data yet, only because no one knows how to get any data from about what happened before the universe. But um, this says that our universe could be a bubble of space-time in a super-universe that is extremely hot and expanding far faster than the speed of light. It's tricky, it's really interesting, it's mathematically very sophisticated, but as I said, there's no evidence for it yet. However, it's our best theory. So if you're going to put God before the universe, you have to push God to the far side of eternity. And what does that even mean? It doesn't mean anything. A God out there couldn't possibly interact with us. So what I'm saying is that picture of a God that somehow existed first and then created the universe no longer makes sense with what we now know about how our universe began. Um so I so I asked myself for a long time I was asking myself could any kind of a god exist? And then I realized that the question of existence can't be answered unless you have defined what god is because what is it that you're asking? Uh that it exists or not. And I realized that the only way that something as complex as what we think of as god could possibly exist is if it came into existence slowly, the way everything else has happened. The universe started, it was nothing but particles and energy, and slowly it has evolved into us, planets, life, and so forth. The universe started small and, and grew, everything else did too. So God has to have started small and evolved. Where could it have started from? And that's where the idea of emergence comes in. Okay, so now this is going to take a, a couple of minutes, but I want to explain basically what emergence is means. It's a scientific concept. The idea, very, very simply, kind of oversimplified, but still, is that when there are many, 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 many parts interacting in complex ways in any system, something larger emerges from the whole system, which is qualitatively different from the parts that made it up, but is as real as the parts that made it up. So let me give you the simplest possible um, example. Suppose you have a room full of air molecules, like the room that you're in right now. Those air molecules are zooming around in all different directions really, really fast. They're all interacting with each other. It's a mess. Nobody could possibly ever explain what's going on. But out of all of that complexity and interaction, the room has a temperature. Now, where did the temperature come from? The temperature emerged from the complexity of the interactions of all those molecules. And this happens at every level from uh, the simplest atoms up to the, the universe itself.
0: And so when we turn this around to talk about divinity and in particular about God, am am I hearing you correctly that if we take the the vast number of physical complex processes in the universe, what emerges out of that is something that we might call divinity? Or am I hearing you incorrectly?
1: No, no, not at all. Here's what I'm saying. When the, the only place that God could have emerged from is human beings, not from the universe, but from human beings, what aspect of us many things have emerged from us the the economy the global economy has emerged from humans trading goods governments have emerged from people trying to make other people live in a decent way and so they, in a reliable way the media has emerged from our insatiable desire for gossip and knowing what's going on um these are real phenomena the media is real the government is real but they're not human even though they emerged from human activities. Now, this is where I think we can find God, because what could God possibly have emerged from? It has to be something much older than trading goods and, and trying to build governments. I believe that God emerged from the staggeringly complex interactions of human aspirations. I think that aspirations are the key here. Our aspirations are real because they are what make each of us into an individual. Without aspirations, each of us would just be uh, basically meet with habits. We wouldn't really have any goal. We wouldn't have any purpose. We wouldn't have any desire to do anything. Our aspirations are what push us, and they are really what divide us from the primates, the other primates, because the other primates don't appear to have aspirations. They play, but they don't really try to make life better for their children than it was for them or to do things in a new way. So aspirations are the key to what make us human, and our interacting aspirations have led to this enormous planetary phenomenon that has arisen from the human species, and that, I believe, is real. Now, whether you want to call it God or not, that's the only question. I'm actually discussing in this book, when I say a God that could be real, I'm discussing a phenomenon which is real, an emergent phenomenon from human aspirations. It's real. It needs a name. What is the best name for it? Well, this emergent phenomenon is the creator of language. None of us could have created language on our own. It's the creator of science. It's the creator of art. All the endeavors of humanity that were aspirational and remain aspirational, we can say, we can choose to say that These were the creation of this emergent phenomenon. So for me, that is God. That is what really matters about
0: God. This is Things Not Seen. We'll continue our conversation with Nancy Ellen Abrams in just a moment. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, we have over 50 shows archived on our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, and they're all free and available for download. And if you want to carry them along with you, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. You can go back and explore all the catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you, as always, for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're returning now to our interview with Nancy Ellen Abrams, author of the recent book, A God That Could Be Real. There are certain texts from various religious traditions that I think would be very comfortable with what you're saying. And I I think, for example, the first few lines of the Tao Te Ching, the way that can be named is not the constant way, the name that can be named is not the constant name, and even if we look in Christianity in the in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, we could find people like Ludwig Feuerbach who says, "You know, we are really projecting our aspirations into the heavens, and that's that's what we what we call God." But there are going to be critics who will simply say, "No, at the end of the day, that doesn't describe this phrase for me." Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And so, my question now would be. You must have gotten pushback against this as you've been out talking about these concepts, teaching the courses that you've been teaching as you've been talking about the book. And I'm interested both if if you have gotten pushback, sort of if, if you could characterize it, and what do you consider to be the most reasonable pushback that you've gotten uh, from people that don't accept your premise?
1: Uh, reasonable pushback, I can't really say that any of it seems reasonable to me because the the way that people push back is... They hang on to their metaphors, and they get closer and closer to interpreting them literally. I think that all of those beautiful phrases that you just quoted have tremendous meaning, and they can be used metaphorically as they were intended to be. These things were never intended to be taken literally. Literalism is a relatively new way of interpreting religion. I think all of those phrases can have deep meaning, but you have to understand what the basis of God is first. If you think of God as this astonishing planetary phenomenon that has arisen from human beings that didn't create the universe but created the meaning of the universe, which is what matters to us, if you think of God that way, you can find a tremendous amount of wisdom in almost everything written about religion that is, you know, of of the type that you've just mentioned. But you have to have the basic idea first, that God cannot be a universal phenomenon. We can think of it that way, but there's nothing out there universal without us. Without us, there cannot be a God. There cannot be. And that means that God will live forever as long
0: as we live forever. Well, now this next question is sort of conjectural. This is this is a next steps question. You've you've written the book, and you have said in the book that that you would like to have uh, a sort of rehabilitated religious con- consciousness for the sake of, in your phrase, is planetary morality. And I, I'd love to talk about planetary morality, but I also want to ask the question: Do you see the possibility that this way that you have described uh, the God that could be real? Could that become the basis for a new religion, or is this simply an exercise in individual consciousness raising from person to person to person?
1: I don't really know what creates religions. Um, I'm not interested in creating a new religion at all. I I think that would really be defeating my purpose. What I'm trying to do is to find – well, I have several goals – One, of course, was for myself to find a way to think about God that I could be directly connected to. If God is emerging from all of us, from our aspirations, that means that every one of us has a direct connection to God. And every time we aspire, we are actually enlarging God. And when other people aspire, they are enlarging us. So this connection is real and present, and you can feel it, and you can pray to it, and you can feel connected. That's what I needed, and that's what, for me, this is. But it turned out to be much more than this, because in order to understand this God, you have to first accept that we live in this very strange universe, which I like to call the double dark universe, because it's made mostly of dark energy and dark matter. So living in this particular universe tells us what can't be true of God. It never tells us what can be true. I mean, science can never tell you what the truth is, but science can tell you that certain things can't be true. In other words, it can rule things out. And all I want to do is rule out the things about God, the things people say about God that make it look unreal, and say, well, what's left? After we rule those things out, what's left? And that's what I found, that what's left is that there still is everything that matters to us about God. All we really need God to do is be inspiring, to to pull us together, to nurture the best in us, to strengthen us in our aspirations, to connect us to each other and to our ancestors and our descendants. This emerging phenomenon can do that. And that, to me, is the essence of what we really want from God. We don't need God to have created the universe. It's not necessary, Lots of people have prayed to saints and gods that didn't create the universe. It's just, it's one of those things where if you say God has to have done this, you're automatically saying, I don't accept the way the universe really is. And that cannot possibly be a survival strategy for human beings. So I think that this is something, because it's based on science, it could be shared worldwide without people giving up their religions i don't want to start a new religion i just want people to think about god in a different way and then see how that affects their religion and how that helps them clean off the excess post-it notes that people have stuck all over the religion
0: well nancy ellen abrams there is so much more i want to talk to you about about all of this and i hope that you'll come back at some point but for right now just thank you so much for talking to us today
1: thank you so much for having me david
0: We've been speaking today with Nancy Ellen Abrams. She's the author of A God That Could Be Real, Spirituality, Science, and the Future of Our Planet. Nancy Ellen Abrams is a philosopher of science, a lawyer, and an author. With her husband, the cosmologist Joel R. Premack, she has written several books, including The View from the Center of the Universe, Discovering Our Extraordinary Place in the Cosmos, and The New Universe and the Human Future, How a Shared Cosmology Could Transform the World. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Navy Pier Studios, overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Colin Ashmeet Bobbitt engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, getting over a cold, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.